Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mary Anaise Hegler. This episode, we are getting into indigenous rights um, and land back and how that is not at all ever inseparable from the climate crisis and climate solutions. It is the the ultimate thing that we need to be dealing with. Um, and we have a very special guest here to talk with us about it. Yeah, we have on probably the best person we could to talk about this mm-hmm. issue, reporter Rebecca Nagel. You might recognize her name from various stories that she's written for The Guardian, The Washington Post, all over the place. And then she also did the great podcast, This Land which takes sort of a true crime approach to indigenous rights. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's really thrilling. It's like a true crime, kind of like drills, um, but about a really interesting case. And I'm not going to give any more spoilers about it, but go listen to it. Um, yeah, I learned a lot from this uh, conversation with with Rebecca. I feel like this was a really important episode for us to do and just like realizing how little I knew. So I was just like listening to her and soaking up all the knowledge that she was bringing to us. Same, same. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, Rebecca's focus in her work is to really, um, you know, kind of bring people up to speed on where we're at with Indigenous rights today. But that goes to speak to how poorly covered it is in in our media that we don't understand it so well. So um, we talk about a few articles in here. And if you want links to those, you should subscribe to our newsletter. Um, If you want some extra amazing premium content, you can also subscribe for just $7 a month. We also have a free version, if that's a bit much for you right now. It will include the links from today's episode, but also we do a weekly roundup of climate rating, and we always include at least one free feature. We'll drop details in the show notes on how to find it and how to sign up. Yeah. All right. It's time to talk about climate. Rebecca Nagel, welcome to Hot Take. Thank you so much for doing this. We're so excited. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so we wanted to start with a pretty basic question. What motivated you to get into journalism? Yeah, totally. I have like a really non-traditional path to journalism. Like I didn't go to journalism school or like have a beat at a local paper for years or something like that. I actually was doing community organizing and advocacy and would do a lot of writing in that role. So I was kind of the one in my organization that was like writing the press releases or sometimes even writing op-eds. So I would write sometimes op-eds or even like ghostwrite op-eds for people and found like the power in that. You know, I wrote an op-ed, I think in like 2015 or something for my local paper when I was living in Baltimore that had this like really big impact on people. And so I think that that made me think about just the power of writing as a tool in itself instead of sort of just as a tool to get the others, you know, like the policy that I was working on or something like that, more attention. And so, yeah, I think from that experience, I kind of just fell 
into it. And, and I think what motivated me in particular is that I think, you know, as as a Cherokee woman, as a Native person, you just kind of live in this world of pervasive invisibility. You know, um, like one of the things I always tell people would be like, if I told them I was a feminist and they were like, oh my God, it's so messed up. You can't vote. I'd be like, well, that was like our issues about a hundred years ago. And, you know, a lot has happened since then. Um, You know, people, if they have even a little bit of awareness about Native tribes and history, it kind of falls off this cliff circa 1890. And it I think is probably one of our biggest barriers to progress. And so I think accurate media coverage of Native issues is really paramount to getting, you know, bills and court decisions that actually uphold tribal sovereignty instead of what we typically see, which is the sort of constant erosion of tribal sovereignty and indigenous rights. So what led you to making your podcast with Crooked Media, This Land? It has a funny origin story, which I guess I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate for. But I had, I had been covering and writing about the Murphy case for a little under a year. And I had published this op-ed with the Washington Post about the court case around when it was first heard in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, Tanya Sominator uh, from Crooked Media read it and was like, this should be a podcast. And so they actually reached out to me and we met and I was, you know, I was, I felt a lot of pressure around the opportunity because I had never made a podcast before and it was a huge platform. Honestly, it's really transformed my career, but I was really excited by the opportunity to cover it in depth. And, you know, at the time, even though this court case has had you know, huge ramifications and I I think is one of the most important cases for indigenous land rights in the last 50 years, if not in the last century. Um, No one outside of Oklahoma and Indian country was really talking about it. So it was a really, I felt like important opportunity to bring the story of this case to a more mainstream audience. We're going to get way more into it later, but just really quick, can you tell us a little more about the Murphy case and what what it involves? Yeah, totally. So the history of the case has a sort of complicated, windy history. So there's actually two cases that went to the Supreme Court. So the Murphy and McGirt cases sent basically one basic question to the United States Supreme Court, which is, does Muscogee Creek Nation still have a reservation? Mm -hmm. And at the center of that question was basically, you know, was the Supreme Court going to follow its own precedent and kind of the plain text of Congress and use the rule it has created to decide whether or not a reservation still exists, which is, you know, did Congress ever disestablish it? You know, is there a treaty or is there an act of Congress that says, hey, there's no longer a reservation, which for Muscogee Creek Nation never happened? Or would the court kind of make stuff up and kind of Hmm. bend to this idea of, you know, yeah, like Congress never just established the reservation, but come on, you Mm -hmm. know, like Oklahoma has acted like there hasn't been a reservation for over a century. So, I mean, we can't possibly come back a hundred years later and say that there's a reservation, even though that's what the law clearly says, it's still absurd. And so there, those were sort of, I would say, in a nutshell, the two sides of this case of, you know, um, basically, you know, treating treaties like we treat any other area of the law or any other area of like statute that, you know, like the court makes 
people follow the law (laughs) or, you know, if treaties are sort of somehow this lesser standard, which is um, how the courts apply the law when it comes to Native rights, um, surprisingly often. And that all kind of leads into this next question, which is something that has come up a lot on this podcast. And that is, do you get accused of being a quote unquote activist journalist or doing advocacy journalism? And what do you think of those terms? It's funny, even when I was doing policy and advocacy work, I didn't use the word activist. I used the word organizer, which is like a totally different topic. But (laughs) I just feel like I I do feel like very interested in movement building, which I think is sort of really different than sort of like showing up for one protest, building power which has a lot to do with building relationships among people is a different process than like us all showing up on a street corner one day and then going home and never talking again. And so I really actually believe in the power of organizing for social change. And I think when we look at the history of the United States, the big moments that we all think of, we think about these flashpoints like Selma or the March on Washington, but we aren't taught, I think, purposely about all the work that goes behind it. So I I think that actually like in this moment of there being a lot of organizing, I think we need to be clear about like building those long-term relationships because that sustained power base is what really drives, I think, change in the United States. And yeah, I mean, I get accused of being quote-unquote biased. I think also like as a Native woman, um, you know, that's going to happen to me a lot more than like a white journalist. Um, But I think, you know, you can see, like I think in the Murphy case, it's actually they're really good examples of you know, the New York Times, local press in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma has been horrible about it, of publishing things that are just factually not true. You know, like Oklahoma tried to make this argument that thousands or hundreds of past convictions would be overturned. And, you know, there are these laws that actually don't have anything to do with reservations or native land rights, but actually just the criminal appeals process that just makes that argument absurd and impossible because there's a really, there's there's sort of this like very limited time window of when people can bring up certain kind of appeals and like the overwhelming majority of people Um, are out of that window, right? And so, but you saw it everywhere, um, just this repeat of this argument that wasn't based in fact. And so I think that a lot of times um, you see, I see a lot of bias in how Indian country is covered, but I think we don't call it bias because it's white bias, right? And so there's sort of this default to, you know, questioning tribal sovereignty. I have done a lot of coverage of the Indian Child Welfare Act And there's this way that often the court case comes down to like these sort of custody disputes between white adoptive parents and foster parents and tribes who want to keep Native children in Native homes and connected to their culture, which is the point of this law. And now all these white parents are challenging it. And the way it's covered, you know, by the LA Times, by NPR, by the New York Times, by the Atlantic is you know, this heart-wrenching story of these, like, good white people want just, you know, out of the kindness of their heart wanting to raise Native kids. And even, like, NPR did a story where they talked about how low a child's blood quantum was and how absurd it was that that child would be considered a Native child. And so you just, you see these kind of horrific examples 
of racism and bias, I think, a lot in the coverage of Indian country. And I think really what it goes down to is just staffing is that, you know, there are very, very, very few Native journalists like working at non-Native outlets. Like I tried to make a list on Twitter one day of like all the people that I know who have a Native beat. So their beat is to cover Indian country who are Native and who are working at a non-Native outlet. And there's this like Report for America fellowship. There's like a handful of those. But then outside of those that are funded by them, I got a list of four people. (laughs) So it's like, it's really rare. And I think that that's why when you look at mainstream media, their coverage is just really lacking. And I think that too, like it needs to not just be like about race, but it's like, you know, like the New York Times prides itself on, you know, really knowing the issue and that their reporters are in Beirut and are stationed there and really know the communities that they're reporting on. And it's like, if that's your standard, you get an F minus on Indian country because you guys don't know shit about it. You don't have anybody who's reporting on it. You're not embedded in these communities. You swoop in half the time, get the story horribly wrong and then leave. And and so I think it's like, they're not even meeting their own journalistic standards when it comes to Indian country. And I think that we need to talk about it in that way too, where it's just like, this isn't just a disservice to our community. It's just bad journalism. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think about that a lot in terms of like uh, reporters of color just being pigeonholed into covering certain beats. Like I've noticed this a lot at big outlets where like there's this um, all of a sudden they realize they need to talk about (laughs) racism. And so they take whatever reporter of color they had writing on anything and throw them on the race beat. Um, And I imagine it's so much worse with indigenous issues because there's so few indigenous journalists that have been hired at these sorts of outlets. Um, So they're all like kind of scrambling to make them talk about it. And then there's also this thing of, um, we talked about this on our episode with Kendra about um, Black writers were considered automatically biased to write about the, the protests because they were Black. And yeah, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple um I've had a couple experiences where I've pitched something that's like I, I remember I, I wanted to pitch a story about how data on COVID and Native Americans wasn't really being collected. And I I ended up publishing it for The Guardian, but one of the first places I pitched it to, they were like, I'm going to forward this to the opinion section. And I was like, huh? Like I, like I, this is going to be like a, like a bunch of, you know, information requests to public health departments and like crunching numbers and like it it's a reported piece. Like h- how is this an opinion? You know, and that kind of thing happens to me a lot where yeah. um, people are like, oh, yeah, that 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 goes in our opinion section. I'm like, no, it doesn't. I'm just trying to report the facts here. They can't handle the facts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Um, so. Yeah, indigenous rights stories and climate stories intersect quite a bit. Is there one area of overlap in particular that you think people should be paying more attention to? I feel like you talked about a couple, but there's any others. The way I see it is that I don't I don't think we're going to solve the problem of the climate crisis without indigenous sovereignty. You know, if you look globally, you know, even though indigenous people we have control, often limited, over a very small mm-hmm. percentage of the land in 
the globe, that land over represents, you know, things like biodiversity of species, important things like rainforests. And so this idea that we're going to solve the climate crisis without really shifting what land management and indigenous sovereignty and um, indigenous land rights looks like both in the United States and globally, I think is, I think that people are just missing. And I also think that like, for us to solve the climate crisis, we're going to have to fundamentally restructure our society. And I don't think that that's going to happen without a lot of um, direct action. You know, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to fundamentally restructure transportation, our economy, energy without massive public direct action. And when you've seen that happening, you know, from Canada and the pipeline there to, you know, I think most famously Standing Rock, it's been led by Mm -hmm. Indigenous people. And so I think that the climate movement does itself a disservice by often leaving us out because I think that we are a key piece we're essential to solving the problem. Yeah, 1,000%. What's the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer? Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, the lawyers that I like are the ones that are generally... Uh, you know, fighting for indigenous rights. I think that, um, you know, we had really, we had great lawyers fighting the Murphy case and I think they're non-native, but the reason that they were really, really good is because they've spent years, um, working with NARF and working with NCAI and like actually, um, like, uh, Riaz Kanji who've who argued for Muskogee Creek Nation made a point of making like a Supreme Court practice that supported tribes. And I think that we had a long track record of losing at the Supreme Court because, you know, when you go to the Supreme Court, you want to find somebody who's argued in front of the Supreme Court before, right? There's sort of this way that it's this very elite group of lawyers. And a lot of those lawyers don't know mm-hmm. shit about tribes or federal Indian law. So they would get up there and they would be arguing for tribes and you'd be kind of like banging your head against the wall because you'd be like, why aren't you bringing this up? Or why aren't you saying this? And it's like, they just weren't experts in that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is going to sound super inappropriate after an answer like that. But the answer we were looking for is a good lawyer knows the law and a great lawyer knows the judge. <laughs> Well, then Lisa Blatt is a great lawyer and Lori McGill is a great lawyer because they're tight with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, and Matt McGill is a great lawyer because she she came to their wedding. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Okay. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour 
lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. One thing we wanted to talk about just to get us started is um, indigenous oppression and genocide, the original sins of the climate crisis. I think, um, you know, if anyone is wondering why we're talking, you know, about so much about indigenous rights on a climate podcast, let's clear that up real fast. So one thing that's like just a real pet peeve of mine is this shallow analysis of the climate crisis. People often just like boil it down to, well, the climate change because of the carbon pollution from the fossil fuels. We just got to get off the fossil fuels. And it's like, but it's so much deeper than that. That's just the ultimate manifestation that you have today. Um, but you don't get the discovery of the oil and the industrial revolution and mass scale deforestation and the perversion of the agricultural system without colonialism and slavery. And that also starts with the indigenous genocide and dispossession. Um, so, for example, one of the things I think about is um, there was a study in early 2019 that was just like all over the headlines about how um, indigenous genocide actually changed the climate. Like someone studied this and found that that level of death at that scale um, literally changed the climate. Um, and I found that so shocking, one, that someone needed to study that, and two, that people were surprised by it, right? Like, people are part of an ecosystem. If you remove them, if you hurt them, if you damage them, like, obviously, it's going to change all the other pieces of the ecosystem. And I was looking at it and thinking, like, this is the beginning of that bullshit myth of man versus nature. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Like, that's the ultimate sin that led us here in this, like, change of our, uh, well, I'm saying our, but I mean white people's relationship with <laughs> with the planet. Yeah, yeah I, re I recently did this story where I got to interview some really cool women who started this organization called Indigenous Women Hike. And we were talking about, like, they've done a lot of work um, to reclaim the John Muir Trail as the Numopoyo, which is the original word for it um, from Paiute people mm -hmm. who like like created the damn trail <laughs> you know? and white people mm -hmm. hate that being pointed out but you know I think it goes even kind of like deeper than that because this whole idea of like wilderness and nature right being this area that's sort of like one um where we escape mm -hmm. to from like industrialized cities and all these places that are disconnected from nature but also like untouched or like pristine and uninhabited by man is I think a very like it, yeah it's a very wide idea 
And yeah, and, 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 you know, we can look at sort of like all the forest fires happening in California right now. Like, and, you know, we have a long tradition of doing controlled burns. Like even like where I live, um, like when in the fall, when you're driving through like more rural communities in Cherokee Nation, like you will see the hillsides on fire. Like our word for fall um, is connected to one of the words for things burning. We'll go husty. And yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I mean, it's just as like people still do it on their land here in Oklahoma, um, controlled burns, you know? And so I think that this idea of, I, I think one of the things that we really need to have a conversation about is sort of returning land management and land stewardship and the sovereignty of land to indigenous tribes. Like when you look even at sort of like our national park and forest system and how it was created, it wasn't just this sort of like idyllic moment. It was this land grab from Native nations. And a lot of the places that are within our national parks are actually places that are sacred to our tribes. You know, like when you look at places like the Black Hills or even like the Grand Canyon. And so, yeah. And so I think there's a lot as Indigenous people, we have this long history of taking care of the land. And sometimes that can be, you know, an obnoxious stereotype, you know, sort of like the crying Indian, like don't litter kind of thing. And and today it's complicated. You know, there are tribes that are very dependent on oil extraction on their lands economically, you know. And so it's not like we're perfect, right? Um, But I do think that there's if you look at history and if you look even today at like what tribes are doing in general, we're much better caretakers of the land. And so I think that returning um, indigenous jurisdiction and indigenous sovereignty is going to be key to ending the climate crisis. But yeah, I mean, I think the whole idea of um, sort of like nature and civilization or nature and man being these things separate. that are wholly separate is like a really Western idea. Yeah. It's kind of weird if you think about it, you know? And so, and it's, and it's not that Native people, you know, that we're all out here like hugging trees and shit, but it's just as like, I think in our culture, there was, you know, more of an understanding of how to like take care of things. Like it's like when you harvest, mm-hmm. like even if you, when you go out and you like pick wild onions or something like that, there's a certain way that you pick so that they grow back even stronger the next year, right? And so it's like when you go out and you harvest certain things, like that's part of like how you're taught even to like harvest things so that they grow back even stronger. Um, And so I think that a lot of times people think that, you know, the United States was sort of this like uninhabited wilderness, but it was actually like an area that had been, well, one, like a lot of our tribes were agriculturally based. You know, my tribe was, we grew corn as one of our main crops, but that it was also something that we had been cultivating. And so like, it wasn't, it wasn't just that there was an abundance. It was that there was an abundance that had actually been cultivated and created by indigenous people. Um, You know, like one of the reasons we would do control burns is Mm because we would help we would help control like where certain game um, would roam, you know, and sort of expand areas that game roamed by like what plants grew where. And so like, there's just, I think a lot of that, that people don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me um, think of like um, more along this lines of like man versus nature is that when you think of 
nature is something that's separate from yourself, that kind of gives you license to do anything you want to it and to not really care about what happens to it because it's not happening to you, it's happening to nature. Um, And I also think about it a lot in terms of like all of these people who have just like recently become climate woke or whatever. And they're like, oh, I thought that was happening somewhere else. I thought that I existed outside of nature. And it's like, but weren't you breathing air? Your name, his daughter. Oh man, I don't know. Uh, Amicus Sue. Oh Sue. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. I was thinking. <laughs> I was overthinking it. Amicus would have been good. Sue. Yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, what do you call a priest that becomes a lawyer? Um, a convert. Uh, I don't know. Oh, that's um, good. I don't know. A father-in-law. Oh, hey, there you go. (laughs) Okay, so that kind of dovetails into the tribal sovereignty question, which you just mentioned a little bit there earlier, Rebecca, but I think a lot of folks probably don't know much about the various attempts to erode sovereignty and how they've picked up under Trump. We know oil and gas guys have been involved in this, casino developers. Now it seems like there are multiple attempts to get around this recent Supreme Court ruling, which came out of the the case that you covered pretty heavily in the first season of This Land. You know, I think in terms of the Trump administration, I think one thing um, that didn't get a lot of attention but was really alarming for tribes was that before he even took office, he had like a task force on Native Americans. And his task force recommended privatizing all remaining Native land with this actually are, yeah, we've actually, that's actually already happened. So like, we went through this process called allotment, which was exactly that. Like, um, it happened to my tribe. It was devastating. It happened to a lot of tribes. We lost two thirds of our land base between all Native tribes, not just my tribe, between 1877 and 1934, 90 million acres. So about an area about the size of the state of Montana um, was transferred to white ownership through this idea that um, if Native people held private land, that we would be better capitalists and would be more economically prosperous. But instead, we were just like swindled out of it and a bunch of white people got a lot of money and actually communities that had been okay and self-sufficient became destitute. And um, so there's this sort of almost like allotment 2.0 happening right now on the far right of this idea that the reason that Native Americans are poor is because there's so much regulation about what should ha- what can happen on their land because it's land held in trust by the federal government and we should just privatize it so then it's like all other land, right? And it's like, it, this is like the exact same thing that people are saying in the 1870s. It's kind of insane. And so I think that that to me 
and some other arguments around like, you know, Trump did this thing again. It didn't get a lot of attention, but his health and human services secretary um, said that Native people couldn't be exempt from Medicaid work requirements because that would be based on race. And that's really scary because the United States federal government has a trust responsibility, one that has actually never lived up to, to provide Native Americans health care because, you know, when we gave up billions of acres of land, one of the things that happened was that in exchange for that, the federal government would promise our tribes things like food and health care and education. And so that's not just like a handout. It's actually, you know, like if you don't want to provide us health care, give us our land back. <laughs> the Trump administration has done some things that haven't gotten a lot of attention, but I think in terms of like a tribal sovereignty and a federal Indian law perspective are really scary because it's sort of this sort of like neo-termination, neo-allotment thing of, okay, what on a large scale can we do to dis basically divest tribes of the land that still remains or maybe just like get rid of tribes altogether. Um, and I, and I think there are some people on the far right that that's their agenda. Um, and so, and then in terms of what happened with the Murphy and McGirt cases, so, um, you know, the Trump administration intervened in the case and the federal government uh, argued on the side of Oklahoma and the Trump administration intervened early. Like normally, I mean, it's kind of like a very like in the weeds procedural thing. Usually the Supreme Court, if there's like an issue about federal Indian law, they all often go to the feds and are like, hey, like, what do you guys think about this? And before being asked, the United States petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case because um, the Tenth Circuit, the court right below the Supreme Court had ruled in favor of the tribe. And so before even, you know, having that kind of reach out from the Supreme Court, the Trump administration petitioned the court to hear the case and to overrule the Tenth Circuit decision, which is very, it's like, again, it's like a such in the weeds, like procedural thing, but it's very rare. Like that never happens. And so in Oklahoma is this state that very unsustainably sort of bends over backwards for the oil and gas industry. And the oil and gas industry here is very, very powerful. And so we saw that during the case, during the briefing, during the arguments. And then we've seen it afterwards where, you know, since the decision came down, there's been this push from the Oklahoma Attorney General's office, from the oil and gas industry, and even from some of the representatives to Congress from Oklahoma, this idea that we need to fix the McGirt decision, that, you know, this decision is going to create chaos. And so we need Congress to come in and sort of limit what it means. And a lot of that is driven by the interests of the oil and gas industry. And so, and a lot of it is actually overblown because, um, sadly, tribal sovereignty is already so limited that the regulatory authority um, of the tribes on our now acknowledged reservations is actually still pretty small. Um, and I, you know, that there's sort of a long list of reasons that has to do with things that the Supreme Court has said, things that Congress has said. But, you know, um, I, I, and I think that's one of the ironies of this case in federal Indian law in general is just that, you know, the jurisdiction and the sovereignty that our tribes have over non-Native people and non-Native corporations, even when they're on our land, is extremely extremely limited. And yet anytime there's any idea of that even being expanded by an inch, non-Native people freak out. And that's like what happened in this case. And so when you see the actual impacts on the ground, it, I mean, it's almost even kind of sad as a tribal member because it, it actually doesn't change that 
much, you know, but there's still this sort of huge um, backlash. And and you see that all the time. Like we saw that with the Violence Against Women Act. We see it anytime these cases come up is just idea that tribes having sovereignty over anybody who is not an Indian is it's almost like sacrilegious. And, and I think, you know, kind of going back to the climate crisis and all this stuff is like, I think that's something that we fundamentally need to shift is acknowledge, you know, the inherent sovereignty of tribes. You know, we predate the United States. So it's not like our authority was granted to us by this country that showed up on our land, you know, millennia after we had already been here. (laughs) But non-Native people need to get more comfortable with that idea of tribal governments being governments that have inherent rights and inherent sovereignty, like any other government. I feel like you guys went to like the Lawyers Guild, like Laffy Taffy Bowl. And we're just like, (laughs) we did. We totally did. We totally did. Um, What's the difference between a lawyer and a liar? Oh, wow. Um, A lawyer gets paid for it. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Um, But it's the pronunciation. Okay, so another thing we wanted to talk to you about is Indigenous people and race and this kind of tendency in the quote-unquote mainstream media to talk about Indigenous people as sort of a monolith, both in terms of lumping all of the tribes together and then sort of assuming that people within those tribes all think the same about different issues, one of them being race. You wrote this great piece in the Cherokee Phoenix about how Cherokee Nation needs to grapple with its past on race. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write that piece? And then we're going to ask you to read a bit from it, too. It's something that I had actually been wanting to write about for a while. Like race within my tribe is really complicated. And I think both the history of anti-Black racism within our tribe, but also colorism within our tribe, um, because we're a tribe where we've, you know, we've been mixing with people of European descent for centuries. And so a really big portion of our tribe are like me, which are people that like pass as white. And I think there's a lot of colorism within my tribe, not only against um, black Cherokees, but also against brown Cherokees. And they're sort of the same kind of like racial hierarchy that you see within the United States, you know, mirrored within my tribe. And so as somebody who benefits from that, who passes as white, I feel a lot of responsibility um, to talk about it. And then two things happened on the ground here in Oklahoma that made me be like, okay, I really have to write this piece. One was that there was a march in Tulsa on the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And during that march, some of the people... Um, went onto a highway to like block traffic and a truck drove through the crowd, hit a couple people. And in the chaos, somebody was actually pushed over this overpass and fell 20 feet and is now paralyzed from the waist down. 
And in Oklahoma, if you are a citizen of your tribe, you can get your plates through your tribe. So the truck that drove through the crowd had Cherokee Nation plates, meaning the driver was a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And the man who fell and is now paralyzed, Ryan Knight, is also a citizen of our tribe. And and this was like back when the protests across the country were getting very big and there was a lot of tension. And it was just one of many examples of like cars driving through crowds. But it was this moment where, you know, in North Tulsa, At this Black Lives Matter demonstration on the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, a Cherokee citizen plowed through the crowd. Um, He had a gun. Like, I mean, it was just, it was really bad. And another Cherokee citizen was injured and paralyzed. And Cherokee Nation politics kind of, uh, for better or worse, mostly worse, kind of lives and dies in these like Facebook groups, our tribal citizenry, like loves Facebook. And so on these Facebook groups, all these people were defending the driver. And I kind of lost it. Our our involvement in the United States Civil War is actually extremely complicated. So we actually fought on both sides. And we had our own like internal civil war that had to do with the politics around slavery and also had to do with the politics around our removal. Because we had a very brief sort of like bloody summer of a bunch of people being killed right after our removal. And then things kind of got squashed and then it all boiled back up. And so like, you know, part of like the Confederate Army of Cherokees, like they would go around and like burn other Cherokees' houses down to the ground. So it was like, it was revenge and like, it was about everything, right? It was complicated. But we did fight on the side of the Confederacy. And so we have like Cherokee Confederate soldiers and a very famous general, Stan Wadey, who's actually an uncle of mine, who's the first Native American to be at the level of general in the United States Army. And he was actually the last Confederate general to surrender. So there was this monument to Stan Wadey in the square Um, that for a while our tribe had not had control over when the monument was placed there, but then now does. And so our chief just made the decision to take the monument down. And then there was this huge backlash about how it was like erasing history. And, And so again, all on Facebook. Our tribe, just for people who don't know the history, you know, we adopted chattel slavery from the United States South. We had the institution of slavery. You know, we had laws that said that, you know, enslaved people couldn't read, um, that they could not become citizens. You know, there's like no rose tent to put on (laughs) our version of slavery, which I think a lot of people try to do. At the end of the Civil War, by treaty, the people we had enslaved became citizens of our tribe. And those people came to be called freedmen. But in in the 80s, what you start to see is like them being denied the right to vote and then eventually um, freedmen descendants not being allowed to enroll. And so there was a very long legal battle led by um, a woman named Marilyn Van, who I think deserves a lot of the credit for helping our tribe be better. (laughs) And so we had a court case within our own Supreme Court case that um, did say that the freedmen descendants had citizenship rights. And then there was a petition and a constitutional amendment to take that back away. And then finally, there was a federal court decision in in September of 2017, saying that because of the treaty that we should give freedmen descendants full citizenship rights within our tribe. And 
the tribal administration at the time, instead of fighting that court decision, conceded, we amended our constitution. And today, descendants of freedmen citizens are full citizens within our tribe. But that doesn't mean that there aren't these um, sentiments of anti-Black racism that still linger around. And it, we saw that this summer, you know, the way that people are talking about the monuments and the way that people talked about that incident in Tulsa. Um, there's still a lot of that. And I think, you know, the point I tried to make in that essay is that we are a very mixed tribe, you know, and you can see over and over again, as we make concessions for people who are mixed white and say, okay, like you belong here, even though your blood quantum may be low or you may not look Cherokee, we excluded people who are mixed black. And you see that kind of like over and over again. Yeah. So let's, let's actually get into that um, with the excerpt. Because I think, I think, yeah, there's a lot in there. Okay, yeah. The Cherokee Nation has a long history of anti-Black racism, one that includes adopting Southern chattel slavery from the American South in the early 1800s and our modern government's disenfranchisement of the descendants of the people we enslaved. It's a history that still divides our citizens over what rights the descendants of those freedmen should have, as well as the larger conversation concerning who is legitimately Cherokee. We need to do more to confront that history within our tribe, but there's a parallel history of race within Cherokee Nation, one that that for centuries has shaped our attitudes towards and laws regarding Black Cherokees, and one that is even more difficult for a tribe to talk about, which is Cherokees and whiteness. Yeah. You know, that makes me think of, um, you know, there's also this tendency in the Black community to uh, claim Native ancestry. Um, and <laughs> I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you about that. Um, but like I, I deal with it within my own family of people who like have wanted to claim that. And I think, you know, a lot of that is rooted in this very deep sense of wanting to belong somewhere. Um, and you know, it's really sad. Um, and it's like just this wound that African-Americans carry with them everywhere. Like I've got a lot of family members who have sworn that we were part Indian and specifically Cherokee. That is the thing that happens, um, like specifically with the Cherokee Nation. People try to claim that kind of ancestry. It's like written into my great, 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 great grandfather's memoir, the last one who was a slave. Um, and it's clearly a story that was passed down to him. And everybody in my family's been getting these um, tests done, <laughs> which I refuse to do. I'm not giving these people my genetics. Um, but, and they're all coming back saying that, you know, we're not part. Cherokee. We're not part Indian at all. Um, we're just mixed white and black. Um, and it's just like, um, you know, it's just like a really painful kind of like long and complicated history because yeah, one, those tests don't re aren't really all that accurate. <laughs> oh yeah. And I two, could, we could do a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. How and messed two, up they are. Yeah. I, and two, it's like, for African-Americans, we're just simply never really going to belong in the way that most other people are going to belong somewhere. And it's just yeah. a, a wound that we carry. Yeah, I, I think it's a really painful conversation because there is obviously a clear history of disenrolling and disenfranchising Black Cherokees. Um, but those families have records just like my family does. You know, like the reason I can enroll is because I have ancestors on the Dawes roll, you know, and that's the exact same thing is true for the Freedman descendants. And so 
Um, and I think what's really important to point out too is that like prior to kind of Oklahoma being created and the federal government kind of getting up in all of our business and creating roles, we created our own citizenship roles and race and like being Cherokee by blood wasn't how we determine Cherokee citizenship. So prior to the Oklahoma statehood, Cherokee citizens included people who are Cherokee, quote unquote, by blood, which is like ugh, that phrase is messed up, but mm-hmm. also adopted Delaware, adopted Shawnee, um, freedmen and their children, and then also intermarried whites were considered citizens of our tribe. And so, yeah, but I, I think that that wound is there. And I think that it, it can be really tricky um, because I think that it, like, for me, the way I talk about it is like, I, I get really mad at people like Elizabeth Warren, because as a Native woman who is legitimately Native, but who looks white, I get lumped in with her, right? And I think that I would imagine that the same could be true for people who are Black and Native. They're like, I get questioned about my identity by other Native people, but at a fraction of what Black Natives get. Like, they get so much crap from other Native people. And so I think think that's like when I when I hear folks making like false claims to Native ancestry, like those are the people that I think about the harm being done to is my fellow Black Natives that who I see their identity being questioned a lot and have to like they have to like constantly prove that they're Native because of how anti-Black racism still functions within Indian country. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, Another thing, um, you know, we saw you talking about on Twitter not too long ago is this, um, it's sort of like Indigenous people suffer from um, enforced invisibility in our media and Black people suffer from like hyper visibility and neither, neither party wins in either of those cases. Um, And it's just this... um, interesting way that like oppression can work in very different ways with like different levels of hand. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was, I had been like, I like retweeted and then like added to it, um, for my friend Amber and her, she's like awesome to follow on Twitter. Her, um, uh, Twitter handle is Melanin Muskoki. I hear over and over again, and I've heard a lot this summer that, you know, like, you know, Native people die at higher rates due to yeah. police violence. But when Native people are killed by police, like it doesn't get any coverage. Like, I, you know, and it's true. Like my my coworker's nephew was shot and killed by Salisaw police a year and a half ago. And there was one local story about it. Like that was maybe like 500 words, you know, like it just it it was like a blip. And so like we see that happen in our communities like over and over and over again. But I think what's really important, I, I, I think what happens is that like we don't understand that white supremacy can function differently in different spaces. And I think that white the way that white supremacy functions against Native people and against Black people sometimes is almost opposite. Like my, my favorite go-to is like the one-drop rule versus blood quantum, where it's like if you're one-drop Black, you're Black. And at the exact same time that we see those laws going into effect, we see Congress taking up this idea of blood quantum, which is if you're less than half half Native, you're not Native. And if you think, well, why would something like that be? It's like, well, what is the benefit to a white society? And it's like, well, a society that's built on free land and free labor is like, if there are more Black people, if there are more Black bodies, then there's more free and exploited labor or unpaid labor, not free. And then if there are less Native people, then it's there's more free land. And I think it it's, goes back to the visibility thing. One thing 
something that I would like to see in the understanding of how racism functions in the United States is that difference, because I think there's not a lot of general understanding about it. And I think that it creates both like tension, like between our communities and then also just like a bunch of stupid white people who like can't do both. Like I get really mad. I'm like, your ancestors figured this shit out and like we're able to do both at the same time. So like you want to show up and say that you can't undo both at the same time. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it's like you know, that's like, a really good way you know, to put it's it. Like, <laughs> Like, you know, like literally like because I've like I've like talked to like, you know, like members of like Surge and like, you know, these like, you know, all white anti-racist groups where they're like, well, we're just really focusing on this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's so fucked up for you to pit communities of color against each other. Like, and so I think that there also really needs to be some onus on white people to actually have that deep understanding where, you know, maybe they have, you know, learned some stuff about anti-Black racism, but then they're completely ignorant about Indigenous issues. And that makes Indigenous folks resent Black people, where actually the folks that we should be resenting are ignorant white people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then when you clear all the bullshit out of the way, Black and Indigenous communities are often suffering in very similar ways. Like the fossil fuel industry tends to cite their shit near our communities. We're suffering more from COVID than other communities. Um, Yeah, it's just sort of like all of these ways that they've kind of hid their hands um, and sort of blamed different communities for their own shit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's something I think the lack of how that works is something that really holds our communities back from building together. And I've actually seen a lot of stuff this summer that I think there have been a lot of really awesome Native organizers who've been really showing up for Black Lives Matter. And there have been tangible ways that as Native people, we have benefited from it. Like, the you know, the Columbus statues that have come down, the Washington football team changing their name, like those things happened on the momentum and the labor and the work of Black activists that concretely benefited our communities. And so I think that there are moments where there is that synchronicity. And so I hope that that can keep happening. Yeah, for sure. I I also see it in terms of like the George Floyd protests or like, I don't know, that's not a good name for it because these protests this summer have been about so many things bigger than than just one isolated incident. Um, And also the Standing Rock protests. Um, because whenever indigenous people organize and protest, like the response is always extraordinarily disproportionate um, <laughs> from the federal government. Like they yeah. just show up with tanks for like yeah. five people. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they kind of like, like I think about the way that those sorts of protests are covered. I see so many through lines between the way that they've been treated in the press, the way that people have learned to organize, the way that people have learned to communicate outward through the two those two big events. Okay, so this topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women seems to be getting written about a little bit more, but it's still not as widely known and certainly not as understood as it should be. Um, We've tended to see it covered in the context of man camps, which are these work camps that come up around pipeline projects. And, you know, if they're on Indigenous land, a lot of these workers 
tend to um, tend to act like they have total impunity. I know you wrote this piece in The Guardian about the Trump administration actually starting a task force on violence against Indigenous women, which is surprising in the context of various other things the administration has done, both in terms of pushing through pipelines and in terms of undermining tribal sovereignty. So anyway, we'd love to um, to just hear a little bit from you about, you know, where the media needs to kind of wake up on this issue and um, what's important for people to be paying attention to. Yeah, um, I, I think the like the sort of like ground level entry point for people who aren't aware about the crisis of violence against Native women is that under the legal system that the Supreme Court and Congress have created together is that non-Native people can come on to tribal land and they can rape somebody, they can kidnap somebody, they can murder somebody, they can steal a pack of gum, and the tribe is prohibited from prosecuting them. And so what you've seen as actually in recent decades as violent crime in the United States has trended down for the most part in Indian country, it has skyrocketed to the point that um, four in five Native women, um, four in five will experience rape, sexual assault, stalking or abuse in their lifetime. And actually one in three Native women, one in three Native women will experience that violence every year year. And so the rates in Indian country are astronomical. And one of the things that's happened is that very bad actors, um, very violent people know about this loophole and know that they can just do whatever the hell they want on reservations, you know, Um, one of the, and so we got a partial fix for that um, in the Violence Against Women Act um, that passed in 2013. And so some tribes that meet this kind of giant list of criteria can now prosecute non-Native men who commit domestic violence, but they have to have already been in a relationship with the person that they're abusing. So it doesn't include sexual assault, doesn't include rape, it doesn't include kidnapping. And so one of the things that tribes say that we really need is what's called an oliphant fix and that's the name of the supreme court that that there are some other laws layered on top of it but really that supreme court case is the one that made things this bad and so and really what it comes down to is that tribes you know if you're on tribal land guess what you follow that tribe's laws (laughs) and you are subject to them just like if i go to alabama and i break alabama state laws i'm not a citizen of alabama i'm not a resident of alabama but i would expect that alabama could enforce its laws on me it's like the same thing needs to be true for tribes and so um that's really the 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 solution. And, um, you know, I think the task force, um, you know, it's, like, and so one of the other things is that there's a really high declination rate. So the um, the people that can prosecute those crimes on tribal land, or the, also the states in most places can't prosecute it either. And so it goes under federal jurisdiction. And federal prosecutors, they're prosecuting things like, they're, they're prosecuting big crimes most of the time, right? You know, like interstate giant drug busts and things like that. They're not prosecuting like domestic violence. And so there's a really high level of um, what's called declination, where like the federal prosecutors just decline to prosecute. It's over half. I think it's about like 60 to 70 percent. I don't know the statistics right off the top of my head, but it's over half. And so 
Um, so the federal government saying, hey, look, we're going to like basically what the task force is doing is like looking at cold cases and, and they're assigning more federal prosecutors to these types of cases. And they're really looking at missing and murdered women. Um, and so that's like that helps, you know, like it's not bad. But what we really need to do is for Congress to fix this tribal jurisdictional loophole and just say, you know, no matter who you are, if you commit a crime on tribal land, you will be subject to that tribe's courts and that tribe's laws. Um, and, you know, that's that's the solution that's really needed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for you know, kind of educating us on that and a lot of these other issues. We really appreciate it and hope that listeners do too. And people should definitely check out This Land Season 1 and look for Season 2 next year. Yeah, this was such a great conversation. And I really appreciate like all the all the work that you guys do and the issues that you cover. It's so important. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to Rebecca Nagel for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow her on Twitter at Rebecca Nagel. That's N-A-G-L-E. And listen to her podcast, This Land. And look out for season two next year. Yeah. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at Real Hot Take. I'm at Mary Hegler and Amy is at Amy Westervelt. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews to original reporting to climate grief essays to previews of stuff that we're publishing elsewhere. As well as bonus clips from this show and general rants. Uh, We just released a free newsletter, like the whole newsletter for free. Um, It was dedicated to the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina um, and Hurricane Laura. Um, So, yeah, you should definitely sign up for that. We're also doing a new feature in the newsletter about climate grief, where you can send us your questions about climate grief, and we will send them to a bona fide professional and have that as a running feature in the newsletter. Um, So, yeah, if you have anything about climate grief that you want to send to us, you can email it to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That is hottakes, plural, at criticalfrequency.org. Yeah. We have a premium version too with all of those fun features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us, you can sign up for a founding membership at $210 and you get a shirt. And you get a t-shirt. Yeah, everybody. What else are you wearing right now? One of these people out here wearing a button-up shirt? You need more t-shirts. But we understand that everyone can't do that right now, and we firmly believe that that should not keep you from keeping up with the most important story of our time. So we do produce a free newsletter, too, that has a roundup of weekly coverage and a free feature from us and teasers for all the good stuff in the premium newsletter. Also, you can just buy a shirt if you want. We've got shirts and hats and mugs. And we're getting even more options in there soon. If you have gotten your shirts or any other merchandise you purchased, please send us pictures. We love that stuff. And if you're waiting on a shirt order, it's coming soon. I blame President Trump and his post office fuckery. Yep, me too. Me too. All right. That's enough for this episode. Um, if you've got questions or want to suggest a general theme, you can again email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. 
Yeah, and make sure to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. If you have a negative review, you can send those to Brian Kahn at Earther. That's brian.kahn at earther.com. Yeah, and that's Kahn spelled K-A-H-N at earther.com. All right, we'll talk to y'all again soon. Bye.